Hi, I'm Father Gregory Pine. And I'm Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And you're listening to the Catholic Classics Podcast, where we seek to grow our interior lives by learning from the Church's greatest saints and teachers. Each season, we'll read through a great work, explain its spiritual principles, and help you apply its timeless wisdom to your life. The Catholic Classics Podcast is brought to you by Ascension. This season, we are reading Ascension's edition of Confessions by St. Augustine. A few reminders before we get started. To download the reading plan for Confessions, visit ascensionpress.com slash catholicclassics or text CONFESSIONS to 33777. Click follow or subscribe in your podcast app for daily notifications. This is day 48. Today we will be reading Book 11, chapters 27 through 31 in the Ascension edition of the book. If you'd like to hear some of our conversations on other subjects, follow up with us and three of our brother priests on the podcast, God's Planning. There you'll find weekly episodes on a variety of Catholic themes with occasional guests, scriptural meditations, and special series. You can find God's Planning with any podcast app on YouTube and at godsplanning.org. Alrighty, well, here we are. We've made it. The last chapters of Book 11. It has been quite the time. Uh, you like that? That's great. All right, well, before we get into the reading... Let's look at what we're covering today. So in these last chapters of Book 11, St. Augustine concludes his meditations, his thoughts, his discussion, discourse on time. As I've said in previous episodes, we shouldn't get our hopes up for a neat and tidy definition, conclusion, equation, because it's not where Augustine is and it's not where he's where he's going. Augustine returns to memory, though, here, and to consider how it is that his memories of the past have an effect on the present in which he finds himself. So that'll be an interesting way to wrap up our, our conversations on time in Book 11. But before we get to the reading, let's start with the prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Breathe in me, O Holy Spirit, that my thoughts may all be holy. Act in me, O Holy Spirit, that my work too may be holy. Draw my heart, O Holy Spirit, that I love but what is holy. Strengthen me, O Holy Spirit, to defend all that is holy. Guard me then, O Holy Spirit, that I always may be holy. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 27. Take courage, my mind, and strenuously push onward. God is our help. He made us, and not we ourselves. Press onward where truth begins to dawn. Suppose now that a bodily voice begins to make a sound and does make a sound and continues to make a sound, and then behold, it ceases. There is silence now, and that voice is past and no longer is a voice. Before it made a sound, it was in the future and could not be measured because as yet had no being, and now it cannot be measured, for it no longer is. Therefore, while it made sound, it might be, for at that time there was something that could be measured. And yet even then it was not fixed, for it was passing on and passing away. Could it for that reason be measured? For while passing, it was being extended over some space of time so that it might be measured, since the present has no space. If in that case it might be measured, then let us suppose another voice that begins to sound one tone continuously without any interruption. Let us measure it while it makes sound. Now when it has stopped making sound, it will then be passed, nothing will be left to be measured. Let us measure it indeed and say how much it is, but it continues to make sound, nor can it be measured except from the instant when it began up to when it stops. For the very space between is the thing we measure, namely, from some beginning unto some end. Therefore, a voice that has not yet ended cannot be measured so that it may be said how long or short it is, nor can it be called equal to another or double to a single or the like. But when it comes to an end, it no longer is. 
How then might it be measured? And yet we measure times, though neither those that are not yet, nor those that no longer are, nor those that are not lengthened by some pause, nor those that have no bounds. We measure neither times to come, nor past, nor present, nor passing, and yet we measure times. Deus creator omnium. This verse of eight syllables alternates between short and long syllables. Thus, the four short syllables, the first, third, fifth, and seventh, are but single in relation to the four long ones, the second, fourth, sixth, and eighth. Each of the long ones has twice the time as the short ones. I pronounce them, report on them, and find it so, as one's plain sense perceives. By plain sense, then, I measure a long syllable by a short, and by my senses I find it to have twice as much. But when one sounds after the other, if the former is short and the latter long, how shall I grasp hold of the short one, and how measuring shall I apply it to the long, so that I may find the latter to be twice as long, given how the long does not begin to sound unless the short stops its sound. And how do I measure that long one itself as present, given that I do not measure it until it has ended? Now its ending is its passing away. What then is it that I measure? Where is the short syllable by which I measure? Where is the long one that I measure? Both have sounded, have flown forth, have passed away, and no longer are. And yet I measure and confidently answer, at least as far as is presumed on the regular testimony of our senses, that this syllable is but single as regards their time, and that one is double. And yet I could not do this unless they were already passed and had come to an end. Therefore, it is not the syllables which now do not exist that I measure, but instead something that remains fixed in my memory. It is in you, my mind, that I measure times. Do not interrupt me, that is, do not interrupt yourself with the tumult of your impressions. In you I measure times. The impression caused within you as things pass by remains even when they are gone. This is what still present I measure, not the things that pass by and leave these impressions. This I measure when I measure times. Therefore, either this is time or I do not measure times. What about when we measure silence and say that this period of silence was as long a time as that voice? Do we not stretch out our thought to the measure of a voice which we imagine to have sounded so that we might thereby report the intervals of silence in a given space of time? For although both voice and tongue remain silent, nonetheless, in thought, we go over poems, verses, and any other discourse, or some length of motion, and report on the space of time, saying how long one is in relation to another, no differently than if we pronounced them out loud. If a man were to utter a long sound and had settled in thought how long it should be, he already in silence passed through a space of time and committing it to memory begins to utter that speech, which continues to make sound until it reaches the end he proposed for it. Yes, it has made sound and will make sound, for as much of it as is finished has already made sound and the rest will make sound, and thus it passes onward until the present intent conveys the future into the past, with the past increasing through the diminution of of the future until the future has been fully consumed and all is now past. Chapter 28. But how is that future diminished or consumed if it does not exist yet? Or how is the past increased if it now no longer is except in the mind that does the three things needed for this to be? For it expects, considers, and remembers, so that what it expects through what it considers passes into what it remembers. Who therefore denies that things to come do not as yet exist? And yet there is in the mind an expectation of things to come. And who denies that past things now no longer have being? And yet there still remains in the mind a memory of things past. 
and who denies that the present time takes up no space, for it passes away in just a moment. And yet our consideration continues on, and through that which shall be present proceeds onward to become absent. Therefore, it is not future time that is long, for as yet it has no being. Rather, a long future is a long expectation of the future. Nor is it past time which now has no existence that is long. Rather, a long past is a long memory of the past. I am about to recite a psalm that I know. Before I begin, my expectation extends over the whole. But when I have begun, however much of it I have separated off into the past is extended along my memory. Thus, the life of this action of mine is divided between my memory as to what I have repeated and my expectation as to what I am about to recite. However, consideration is present with me, so that through it what was future may be conveyed over, so as to become past. And the more this is repeated, shortening the expectation all the more, so too my memory is enlarged, until the whole expectation is at length exhausted, when that whole action has come to an end and has passed into memory. And this same process, which takes place in the whole psalm, also can be found for each particular part of it, and for each particular syllable. And the same holds true for whatever longer action this psalm may be part of, and it also holds true for the whole life of man, of which all the actions of man are parts, and so too through all the ages of the sons of men, of which all the lives of men are parts. Chapter 29 but because your loving kindness is better than all lives, behold, my life is but a distended distraction. And your right hand has upheld me, in my Lord, the Son of Man, the mediator between you, the one, and us, the many. Many also through our manifold distractions amid many things, that by him I may grasp in whom I have been grasped, and may be recollected from my old habit, so as to follow the one, forgetting what is behind, not distended but extended, not to things that shall be and shall pass away, but to those things that are before. Indeed, not distractedly, but intently do I push onward to the prize of my heavenly calling, where I may hear the voice of your praise and contemplate your delights, which are neither to come nor will pass away. But now my years are spent in mourning, and you, O Lord, are my comfort, my Father everlasting. But I have been broken apart amid times, whose order I know not. And my thoughts, even the inmost depths of my soul, are torn into a tumultuous mass of various pieces, until I wholly flow into you, purified and made molten by the fire of your love. Chapter 30 And now I will stand and become firm in you, in my mold, your truth. Nor will I endure the questions of men who, by the disease that they suffer as a punishment, now thirst for more than they can hold and ask, what was God doing before he made heaven and earth? Or how did it come into his mind to make anything before he ever had made anything? O Lord, lead them to consider aright what they ask and to discover that never cannot be said where there is no time. Therefore, when he is said never to have made, what else does this mean than he made it no time? Therefore, let them see that time cannot exist without created beings, and let them cease speaking their empty words. May they also stretch out toward those things that lie before and understand that you exist before all times, you who are the eternal creator of all times, and that no times are co-eternal with you, nor any creature, even if there were any creature that is above time. Chapter 31. O Lord my God, how deep are the recesses of your mysteries, and how far from them have I been cast by the consequences of my transgressions. Heal my eyes so that I may share the joy of your light. 
Surely, if there is a mind that is gifted with such vast knowledge and foreknowledge as to know all things past and to come, as I myself know one well-known psalm, truly that mind is surpassingly wonderful and fearfully amazing. For nothing past and nothing to come in ages hereafter is hidden from him just as, when I sang that psalm, what and how much of it had passed away from the beginning as well as what and how much of it remained unto the end was not hidden from me. But far be it that you, the creator of the universe, the creator of souls and bodies, far be it that you should know all things past and future in this way. No, far, far more wondrously and far more mysteriously do you know them. For you are not like the man whose feelings are moved as he sings some tune that he knows or hears some well-known song, expecting the words to come and remembering those that are past, thereby leading him to be varied and to have his senses divided. Nothing like this befalls you, who are unchangeably eternal, the eternal creator of minds. Therefore, just as you knew the heavens and the earth in the beginning without any variation in your knowledge, so too you have made heaven and earth in the beginning without any distension in your action. Whoever understands this, let him confess unto you, and whoever does not, let him confess unto you. Oh, how high you are, and yet those who are humble in heart are your dwelling place. For you raise up those who are bowed down, and they whose heights are found in you do not fall. At the beginning of Book 11, Father Gregory, I asked you if you were excited to start Book 11. At the end of Book 11, where are you on the sort of excitement scale? Yeah, a great question. I think that in this human life, there is great pressure for us to always be excited and to project excitement to our contemporaries because we have to like prove that our life is worth it and that we're crushing it and that everything's going great. And I think that if we're honest, uh, we've been beaten up a little bit by book 11 because it's it's been a lift, not the heaviest of lifts, but a heavy lift indeed. And so I would say that I'm pleased to conclude book 11. I wouldn't necessarily that I am excited about book 11 because... That'd just be a little too much. So hmm. here I am. I can be no other. I'm more excited about book 11 than I am, than I was previously. And, <laughs> and you know, and yeah, I don't know. It's just like time. I feel like I'm in like, what's that movie? Inception or something. That's like, goodness. Uh-huh. Any Christopher Nolan movie, really. I mean, the man is obsessed with time. Kudos to him for it. Yeah. Gosh. I just don't want to leave it, but I think most people are ready to move on. So let's <laughs> let's carry on. All right. So something that St. Augustine's talked about in previous chapters in this chapter with respect to time or a word that he's used, we haven't brought it up yet, except in the readings, is distension, um, the sort of distension of time. When I read that and hear that, it, it kind of reminds me of like some gross medical whatever, but time, you know, distended. It's an idea that comes from Plotinus, who we've brought up, who Father Gregory's mentioned a couple of times. Plotinus defined time as, as a spreading out of life or spreading out. And Augustine takes this up, he uses this to explain that created things don't exist in a single moment, right? We exist in a continuum of, of time as time passes. Yeah, so we exist or spread out through time. And this leads him to consider then past, particularly his past and his memory of his past and how the past affects the future. He begins to talk about the past with respect to how the mind considers the past, expects the future, these sort of things. So, Father Gregory, in these episodes you've mentioned, we've talked about memory in the past and that sort of thing, but here, let's say a bit more about what Augustine's saying about the memory, about its relationship to us now. Obviously, we don't forget the past often. I mean, I forget a ton of things, but you know what I mean. It shapes who we are. It has a serious impact. Yeah, let's start unpacking it a little bit. Yeah. 
so St. Augustine, he has a great esteem for or respect for the power of memory. So you may have come across St. Augustine's meditations in the book De Trinitate, where he's coming up with like different created images to describe the most blessed trinity. The reason you might have heard of this is that it comes up for discussion in Man and Woman, He Created Them by St. John Paul II, which is more commonly known as the Theology of the Body, that collection of Wednesday audiences that he preached between 1979 and 1984. And in his kind of efforts to come up with created images for the Most Blessed Trinity, he's kind of gesturing in the direction of a, a domestic or filial image, you know, father, mother, child. He will refer us back to St. Augustine, who ruled that out because he was concerned that it uh, it kind of led us astray because father and mother, they come together in sexual union. The child that they produce, that beget, is outside of them, whereas in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one nature. And so when St. Augustine meditates on memory and its place, he's doing it in conversation with the other, you know, kind of like powers of the soul in his understanding. And uh, that's like a very precious way for him to come up with a created image of the Most High God because it's, rather than being transient, which is to say terminating outside of God, it's imminent, which is to say terminating inside of God. So he talks about our, our intellectual powers and then the power of memory as a, a great image. So he has yeah deep respect, deep esteem for the power of memory and specifically the power of memory to tell forth the image of God and the working of God in the human mind and heart, you know, like the human interior life as it were. And so w when we think about memory, usually we're just kind of thinking about it in a, a crass uh, kind of materialistic sense. You think about memory studies and early onset Alzheimer's and dementia, and we're like trying to do our Sudoku puzzles or maybe learn a new language, even if poorly later in life. So that way we can retain some grasp on things that we've encountered in the past. But for, for him, it's really this point through which we interface with with all of reality, because all of reality is kind of brought to bear on our interior life through memory, insofar as we we come into touch with things with our senses, and then we abstract from our sense experience, and then it's, it's in and through the memory that we're often referring back to what we've encountered, so that way we kind of reanimate an interior conversation, as it were, with, with all that is. So yeah, for, for St. Augustine, memory is very precious, and that's something that I think it's helpful for us to be sensitive to when we engage with this thought. Yeah, he says too that time is is a property of our mind or our memory because we measure things of the past in our minds or through our memories, and they only exist in our memories. So somehow time, uh, our memory has some sort of grasp over time. It leads him to consider whether or not time belongs to like the soul, um, not in the sense that the soul produces time or that sort of thing, but he's he's wondering where and how the past exists. And because it's memories in our mind, that's what he's talking about. You know, it's not as if our minds create the passing of time. You know, he's not saying that that we are the creators of time and that sort of thing, but asking how it is, where it is that our time kind of sits as it passes. I think, I mean, I think he thinks too about his childhood. You know, my childhood doesn't exist anymore, but I exist. But my memory, the, the reality of my past in as much as it did exist as a present thing at some point exists within my mind and other people's minds too knew me as a child. But it's, it's an interesting thing to think about because as Augustine explained, the past doesn't have existence. It's, it isn't existing. But it's not divorced. It's not separated from that which exists, which is me in the present moment. So, yeah, he kind of situates that in the mind and the memory. As Father Gregory said, he gives like pride of place to our memory. And in a lot of ways, 
the confessions as a whole are like an exercise of engaging with the past because it's a recalling his, his life in the past, you know, his, his biography, his autobiography. Um, but yeah, we want to be careful not to think that Augustine thinks that our memories, our minds are creating time and motion and these sort of things, but he's, he's wondering how it is and where it is. So I don't know if you have thoughts on that, Father Gregory. Yeah, I think it's good to recognize the fact that reality is addressed to us kind of God in his madness, in his playfulness, creates much, not in that he's like, yeah, okay, I'm going to create the rock so that the rocks can enjoy their rockitude. I mean, I suppose there's a baseline sense in which that's true, but but ultimately creation is addressed to us, to intellectual creatures, specifically to us and to angels, for our contemplation, so that in, you know, contemplating the, the ecosystematic harmony of all that is, we might be led to the knowledge of God who cannot be exhausted by one created thing. And so, you know, St. Augustine will say, for instance, that truth is in the mind because truth is that judgment that we make that this thing is the way it is, right? Or that the effort in coming to discover truth is making our minds to adequately reflect what is out there. Truth is primarily in the divine mind insofar as, you know, God makes things to adequately reflect the pattern that he conceives them on. But then truth is in our minds insofar as we grasp uh, creation as God addresses it to us for our understanding. And I think that, you know, time is part of that reality because we said time is the measure of motion. So time is the way in which we uh, kind of plot the changes that take place in created things. And that's something that we can gather in by the power of memory and then reflect upon. And that's, that's part of its dignity because in being taken up into our mind, those things come to a higher expression. I suppose this is by way of strange comparison, but think about the way that environmentalists conceive of the environment and think about the way that industrialists conceive of the environment. Environmentalists, it seems to me sometimes, they're like, it'd be better if all human beings just died so that way, you know, plants and animals could flourish. And the industrialist is like, hey, let's just take this and use it and like effectively rape it for our own ends. Whereas as Christians, that's just not how we engage with the environment, neither the one way or the other. We think about the environment as in dialogue with us as part of like a kind of exchange with us because we're a higher creature and the environment comes to a higher expression in being known and loved by us and being put to godly uses by us. And so we think about it more in, in terms that are yeah genuinely God-given and God-oriented. And so I think that what we have here with this meditation on time, it reveals a similar thing that it's good to know in itself, but ultimately it's good to be drawn up into the intellectual life of these higher creatures, men and angels, so that it can be referred back to God, its source, who is also its end. So that leads us actually to the sort of conclusion of Book 11 and the point of Augustine's sort of meditation that he, you know, how he started. He concludes the book here by comparing his existence in time to God's existence out of time. And Augustine makes clear it's God doesn't have a sort of superhuman understanding or of time or relationship to time. It's not as if he has special controls or deeper insight into time in a human kind of way or in a like an exalted human intellect, but that God exists totally outside of time, that he's the creator of it and he's the creator of all things. And that doesn't mean that God doesn't interact in time with us, but that that God is not bound by time. There is no past, there is no future. There is just an eternal present, an eternal now, and God. And in that moment, all things exist. Everything that was from our perspective, everything that will be from our perspective exists in a single moment in God. He's complete, he's perfect, and yet he creates, and in creating, creates time in which we find ourselves. And as we've said, 
we come to God in time, through time, um, God comes to us too. So there's, there's, I guess I would say in the end, by way of giving my sort of thumbs up or thumbs down, my Rotten Tomatoes rating on book 11, that I find it fascinating. Perhaps, yeah, there's a lot kind of to weed through, but a fascinating thing to think about how it is that God exists, how it is that we exist, and how it is that we, I was going to say, exist together, obviously in very different ways, but how it is that we do that. So Father Gregory, final thought, book 11. I think that uh, this sets us up nice. It's it's fascinating, you know, that St. Augustine concludes this section with a kind of, what, encomium or praise of God. He like, as as we've often observed, he begins with a kind of praise and then petition, and here he ends with a kind of praise, an unalloyed praise. And I think that that reveals to us again, by the framework, it reveals to us the point of all of these meditations. It's not just idle musings. It's not a purely philosophical you know, practice whereby he's drilling down on the nature of things, irrespective of their origin and end. It's, again, it's ultimately to be referred back to God from whom they have come and to whom they are referred, you know, unto ages of ages. So it's cool. Great. It's cool. Book 11. So said <laughs> Father Gregory. Well, we'll leave you there for now. Uh, obviously, with the end of book 11, we are going to turn to book 12. Uh, so get ready for that. We'll know if Father Gregory is excited for book 12 in tomorrow's episode, because that's how we're going to start the next episode. So stay tuned. Know of our prayers for you. Please pray for us. And we will catch you next time on Catholic Classics. <laughs>